The headlines have been filled recently with calls for justice and racial reconciliation. Asbury graduate David Turley says his time in a multi-ethnic church in New York City has led him to believe that the church can set a different example. The church has an opportunity to be a leader on this issue because we should not be burdened by you know, guilt or, or resistance, defensiveness when it comes to kind of even our own history. And we've been given a mandate by God to pursue justice. On today's episode of Belonging and Becoming, we'll hear more about how life in New York City has profoundly impacted David. You'll also find out how he turned a history major into a career in commercial real estate finance. That's next on Belonging and Becoming, hosted by Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. It is my distinct pleasure today to welcome David Turley to our podcast. David is an Asbury alumnus. Dave, thank you so much for taking time today to be with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. Dave, could you give us just in general a bio about yourself? Tell us about yourself, what you do, where you live. Um, I'm a native of Atlanta and attended Asbury College at the time, um, Asbury University now from 1995 to 1999. And then my career led me to uh, New Jersey, uh, right outside of New York City, and lived in New Jersey for some time and then lived in the city for uh, a while and I'm now back in New Jersey. Career-wise, I do commercial real estate finance and investments. And we office you know, New Jersey right outside the city. My partner and I run a small commercial uh, real estate investment bank. We have titled this podcast belonging and becoming. And I love to tell prospective students and parents and really anyone who will listen to me that Asbury is a student's story of belonging and becoming. And I I just wonder if you could take a moment to talk about your time at Asbury, your own spiritual growth, your story of becoming, the relationships that you forged, and then how that catapulted you into the next chapter of your life. Sure. I went from, you know, kind of a very family centric environment in, into a, you know, what I consider to be a much larger family, but still a family, a very safe place that Asbury was for me that allowed me to start individuating my faith experience in my relationship with God. So I took with me, you know, kind of the faith anchoring. Um, I also took with me uh, relationships that I had built at Asbury. I, I developed very, very close relationships because we spend so much time together. Again, one of the features of, of the student life was that we, you know, that was very intentional. So um, I took these I took these relationships and those were also very grounding for me as again, as I kind of explored. I was homeschooled, went to school at Asbury, and then afterwards with a history degree under my belt, but without really much life experience, um, I was inspired to um, to take up traveling. And I think it was a God thing. It was a neighbor who made a kind of a random comment kind of during my senior year. And it was just kind of this flash of inspiration. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go see the world. So my brother and I uh, for a time and then myself solo spent eight months um, out of the next year and a half traveling through Europe and a little bit of the Middle East, you know, spending time in nearly every country in Western Europe. Uh, a few in Eastern Europe, and then uh, a few countries in the Middle East. And that was a very uh, kind of formative experience for me. It's relevant to this story because it allowed me to get comfortable with navigating cities um, and navigating um, kind of urban culture and just becoming a lot more aware of the, the big wide world. At the tail end of that trip, 
without you know any career plans uh, frankly i an, another you know kind of god moment happened when i met a traveler uh, actually in Jerusalem and you know was was kind of thinking out loud pondering out loud what am I going to do when I'm when when this kind of travel period is over for me this young woman who um, I had met uh, another American backpacker um, she had just graduated from Georgetown University and she's like I think you should move to New York and do investment banking and I was a history major so I said what is investment banking and she tried to explain it to me I don't think she did a great job but I um I had this, you know, another flash of inspiration. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to do investment banking. And I ended up in New Jersey, right outside of New York. Uh, I ended up in, in, you know, commercial real estate investment banking. So pretty close on both accounts. Um, and I, uh, and that has been my career. So travel and, and then the move to New York put me in a very, you know, secular world. And I was introduced to a lot of, you know, concepts and a lot of ideas and people and diversity of thoughts and people that I had never, you know, kind of been exposed to. And the faith grounding that I had developed as a student at Asbury and from my childhood as well, but that faith grounding became, you know, very important in this whole new context. It was really kind of, you know, working on my identity. Who, who am yes. I in this yes. new context? I, I existed in a current when I was Growing up in, in an Asbury, because it's in a current, the current was, was pointing towards faith and faithfulness. In this new secular world, the current was going really in the opposite direction. And yes. so in the tension of that, you know, the grounding was so, was so critical to my development. Uh, that's tremendous. And uh, I love the travel story. It was like uh, you took a gap year before that was a thing. Moreover, uh, your Asbury experience is just so consistent with what I hear from so many alumni and even our, our students today. So you mentioned you're a history major and you went into finance. And I love that because, and I, I've mentioned this before on this podcast, I mean, there, there's this narrative about liberal arts and being straddled with debt and studying interesting things, but then not having a job or working as a barista somewhere or getting some kind of technical narrow degree that will at least assure you a job. And I, I just think that is a false narrative. And we tend to be surprised when we hear stories like this of, wow, go figure, someone had a liberal arts degree and now they are in investment banking or uh, an art major who uh, is now in sales. So I, I'm on a, a bit of a quest to dispel this myth, this false <laughs> bifurcation between the two. And I wonder if you could even speak to that a bit about how a history major could open your imagination or even provide some of the groundwork so that you could enter into a field like commercial real estate or investment banking. I do think it's a, it's a false paradigm that, you know, liberal arts is not a good preparation for kind of a wide variety of, of careers. I have to admit that my own story is somewhat unique. I ended up in, in a small firm that had the ability to kind of give me some runway to grow and to kind of learn on the job, kind of both, you know, the technical skills, but also, you know, but also the concepts involved. I mean, when I, I mean, as a student, I, you know, if you had shown me uh, the Wall Street Journal, I would have read it without really understanding anything I was reading. So I, I, I recognized when, when I chose my degree that I was choosing education over vocational training. And, and certainly when I was traveling around, you know, Europe and the Middle East, from history, you know, perspective, I, I understood, I mean, it was, a, it was a fantastic, you know, um, background to have during those travels, because I understood what I was seeing, you know, when I saw Roman castles in Northern Italy, I understood why they were there. 
Now, when I transitioned and say, hey, I want to go do investment banking, doesn't translate nearly as, as well. So I'd gone into my, again, I'd gone into my degree understanding that one, I wanted a good education and I was going to learn a vocation later. Two, I also recognized I had to, I had to prove myself during my education or I would not have a chance to get vocational training later that I wanted. So uh, I applied myself, I got very good grades. And I was able to kind of explain my academic success as, you know, as really my resume. Like if you want to know how, how well I'm going to apply myself and learn what you want to teach me and how well I'm going to learn it, just look at my, you know, my academic record. So fortunately I had that because, because otherwise it was a very kind of tough translation of my background into this new sphere. I had taken computer science and math, which I'd taken actually towards the end of my uh, time at Asbury. And thank God, because it introduced me to Excel. And that became my predominant, you know, kind of work interface for a long time. Um, but I knew enough about Excel, you know, and, and form, you know, formulas. And stuff. So I had some of the technical pieces, but I remember after being kind of on the job for a month, going into, you know, my boss's office. And I said at the time, I was like, listen, I think I figured out what we do. And I want to tell you what I think we do. And I want you to tell me if I got it right. And um, fortunately, I, I did. But I also, you know, I went into that job know, knowing that my education was not complete. Like I, I, had, I completed, you know, a, the academic portion of my of my education, but now was, you know, the vocational training. And I need to I needed to approach it with the same degree of diligence and conviction that I had my academic yes. time. And so um, and, and that, you know, at that education really still continues, but it was a very steep curve for a couple of years. Yeah, we talk about education as this discrete event, what we learned when in reality, it is what we learned, like Excel, but it's learning how to learn. It's this adaptive learning competency and sensibility that really is the best of, of what education offers. You and I uh, had a great conversation earlier in the year on race and ethnic diversity and multiculturalism, particularly within the church. Could you tell us a bit about the church you attend now, your experience there? We'd love to hear how that's different, perhaps, from some of the church experiences you've had in the past. Soon after you know, moving up to the Northeast, um, I had one Asbury connection, one a friend, of, a friend of mine who ended up in New Jersey as well, and he was running an ESL program at a church. And so I would get up on Saturday mornings and I would go volunteer teaching ESL. After about a year and a half, my roommate at the time was involved in a nonprofit called Operation Exodus Inner City. And uh, they tutored, uh, mentored, and tutored young, mostly Dominican immigrants in Washington Heights, Manhattan. The, the ESL program, uh, my buddy had moved on, and I was looking for something else to kind of fill that time slot. And I wanted to serve and, you know, kind of express my faith through service. And so my roommate got me involved in Operation Exodus, and I started mentoring with this program on Saturday mornings, and we would drive into Manhattan, to Upper Manhattan, across the George Washington Bridge, and we would spend time, uh, he and I worked together on with, with the middle school boys as part of a K-12 program. A couple years later, that kind of hooked me, and um, I, that became part of my life. I would do my Saturday morning activity and developed a community and friendships within the other mentor community that were mostly kind of young professionals from all over New York City, coming from all over the country that had moved to New York. They were starting their careers, and, and we would all collectively kind of go up to Washington Heights and mentor. And these were the Christian young people that were they also had a had a social consciousness and wanted to serve those uh, in need. After a few years, this roommate and I ended up moving into the neighborhood because we found ourselves kind of, you know, kind of found our lives fragmented. We had work over here and we lived over there and then we would go to church over here and we did our social life over there. And we're like, we need, we need to, it's a lot of fragmentation in our lives. So why don't we, 
why don't we plant ourselves in a place that we want to, where we also serve, so that we're part of the community. Let's not to over-spiritualize, but let's, let's be incarnate, enter into that space and be part of that community. And if nothing else, stand in solidarity with the, with the, with the folks that we are serving. Um, so we moved into kind of the Dominican, Dominican section of Washington Heights. That experience, kind of both serving there, living there, started opening my eyes to a lot of the plight of people in the inner city, uh, the plight of people of color, young young people of color um, in in poor urban contexts, and started kind of really really reshaping my understanding um, of the world and, and of issues, everything from education to law and order, and ultimately to kind of the heart of God on issues of justice. I had re- attended Redeemer Presbyterian for um, for a number of years when first moving to New York. And um, kind of at this point, similarly, after having lived in the Heights for a while, wanted to, you know, connect with, you know, without disparaging uh, at all, you know, Redeemer's community, wanted to connect with the real New Yorkers, you know, wanted, wanted to be like, who, who are people who like are from New York, you know, they're committed long-term to New York. They're not just here for their kind of New York experience. And so that led me to a church called Metro Hope Community Church in East Harlem. I started to attend there as a, as a, you know, kind of early 30s single guy, met the woman who became my wife. We got married in the church and we still attend the church. Although now we live out in New Jersey and we, we drive into church, uh, at least pre-COVID. Metro is a socioeconomically um, and ethnically diverse church, also kind of living incarnate in one of the poorest, you know, communities in, in all of New York, um, which has some very poor communities, but in East Harlem. The pastor is uh, Latino, um, is predominantly kind of people of color, um, African-American, Latino. Um, there's some Asian folks, and, and there's a couple of us white folks. Um, but I'm, I am the only kind of corporate white male in the church. My wife and I are now married 10 and a half years. We've, you know, we've been there a long time. Um, I've served on the board. And that experience, even more so than, than serving, that experience of, of becoming friends, becoming family with, with people, um, of color, very people very different, you know, in terms of background and perspective from, from me has, has, you know, further shaped my, my lens on issues of kind of, of, of racial justice issues of, you know, kind of got God's heart for the poor and marginalized. And as, as one innocuous story, but just kind of highlighting the differences that, that were initially very kind of jarring to me. The pastor, we, we ended up, my wife and I got married out in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a little bit of a rural community, kind of west of the city. And the pastor who came out, you know, uh, Jose Humphreys, um, is from the Lower East Side of Manhattan and pastors in East Harlem. And um, he confessed to me later, he was kind of freaked out driving around, you know, these kind of country roads at night. And I was like, you know, as a white guy, I had a really hard time understanding where he's coming from. But I was like, oh, you know, I was like, I, I would be uncomfortable walking down East 125th, well, not so much anymore, but back in the day, East yeah. 125th Street, you know, at 10 p.m. at night by myself. Um, he felt completely comfortable there. He was, he felt uncomfortable driving around kind of rural America as a man of color. And just, just that difference in perspective and kind of, you know, kind of issues of belonging and issues of kind of where we feel threatened and also who we feel threatened by kind of it was an eye-opening experience for me as I as I understand kind of my own whiteness, you know, and and um and, and the you know the differences in perspective and culture with my Latino brother. I uh will never forget I was at a different institution and we were hiring an individual and one of the 
stock questions related to ethnic diversity and and how did how did the candidate understand that and appreciate it, et cetera. And this was a a white gentleman who was was interviewing. I loved his answer because you know everyone gives a, oh this is why it's valuable and and they're good answers. But he told a story of being in South America. Uh, I forget the location, but um, he said he said I stuck out. I was I was a gringo and was pulled over at one point and he said i knew the that they wanted a bribe from me um and i just they kept giving me a hard time and uh he said i i finally just lost it and just began to yell at at um these police officers and are you doing this because i'm white are you doing this because i'm an american and he said later that evening it just struck him how other he was in this area and how other uh, people in America must feel. And I just really appreciated that, one, because it, it wasn't something absorbed intellectually. It was an experience that he had, and it was an experience that opened his eyes to new avenues of empathy, which gave him new ways of thinking about such a complex issue. I think it's safe to say that the topic of race justice uh, is very much elevated in the public consciousness of, of America right now for various reasons. What would you say, where, where do Christians have a unique contribution that they can provide to this discussion? My perspective changed, you know, through a series of experiences. Um, everything from kind of living in, um, you know, kind of an urban context where I was the other, you know, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I was the, uh, you know, the white guy to going to, you know, church where also I was a white guy, um, kind of the white guy. But um, let, let me just kind of give a, a quick answer and then I'll kind of dive into some of the experiences. Great. I think the church has the unique ability to be the third way when it comes to issues of race and racial justice, because I think there's a, there's a lot of voices that I heard kind of on the journey of, of what I would say would be awakening or awareness mm-hmm. that, you know, I felt we're, we're, we're fairly binary. I felt like there was kind of denialism on, on one side of the spectrum. Like everything's fine. There is no, you know, there is no racial justice issues. Right. Um, Why are we talking about this? You know, Exactly, um, and then on the other side, a lot of a lot of you know extreme voices on the other side that that you know I felt like were were kind of denying the beauty of the humanity that God had created in me mm-hmm. as a white man, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I, I struggled. I struggled for a long time um, without without a kind of a mid you know without a without a middle path to navigate because I felt like it, you know it was just kind of these is it was. Again, these binary choices, you know, these these uh, these voices that neither one of which I felt like were were speaking the you know the truth of the gospel. So I think I think the church can become the the third way um, because I think there is a unique gospel um, centered approach to issues of race and racial justice. I also feel like the church has the unique ability to not have to be threatened or to feel defensive when confronted with these issues. Yes, um, I feel like if if we look closely and critically at our own history, we have not been on the right side of this issue as a church mm-hmm. for potentially most of the history of the church in America, certainly much of it, which is not 
to try to take a critical lens of the church or deconstruct the church's history. But I think I think it is okay to look at you know our history and and recognize where we've fallen short. And we are, we should be free to do that, like like we are free to do that individually. Mm-hmm. Because we're not because we're saved by grace, we're not saved by works, mm-hmm. right? We don't have to earn our salvation. We we have the ability to kind of not have these kind of you know these these defensive walls go up when when we're you know kind of addressing difficult topics and mm-hmm. when we were looking f- you know for kind of a path forward that may be different than kind of where we've come. Again, my perspective is is shaped by my own journey. I, I you know when I kind of started this awakening. Um, I came at it from, you know, the perspective of a white guy raised in the South. You know, there's a lot of, you know, that I did not understand about the African-American experience, the experience of people of color more generally in the United States. And I, you know, I had a lot of things that kind of had, had, had learned growing up that I had to kind of unlearn or learn, you know, you know, kind of have my perspective broadened. And, and I was defensive. I was completely, I was very defensive. Was, these, these concepts are very threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while for me to have the courage to kind of look, you know, look carefully at at, uh, at myself and and where some of these assumptions or you know where some of my perspective had come from. I'll give a, I'll just give a couple of experiences that you know were shaping to me. Mm-hmm. I have a, a good friend at, at our church. He leads the worship um, team. And a couple of years ago, he was leaving church. We both leaving church, uh, and he had uh, he's an African American uh, man. He was leaving church. He had his two young sons in the back seat asleep in their car chairs and he was driving um, back home and um, he had called me to ask me about he was negotiating a lease on a new apartment he had called me to ask my advice so we're on the phone and he he's he says all of a sudden he says oh shoot he's i'm getting pulled over now he's in new york city driving mm-hmm. and getting pulled over in new york city is is nearly impossible <laughs> um i mean i i routinely do u-turns in the middle of busy streets and and there's no you know cops will drive by that's you know the standard operating procedure there's you know traffic violations unless they're super egregious or you know there, there's no kind of display of, of vehicles on streets in new york that are there for traffic violations so it's highly unusual him getting pulled over mm-hmm. but what he did was he's like hey i'm just going to drop the phone in my lap and then i'll come back to you in a second so he drops the phone in his lap and i'm and i hear the exchange that he has with the police officer Hmm. and after a couple of minutes um the disrespect um and the just the challenging of this you know young man of color with with his two boys you know asleep in the back seat like where where you know who are you where you know where you been where are you going what are you doing here Mm -hmm. right um just completely different than any experience that i had had right with a cop mm-hmm. um and and I, I i overheard it he picks up the phone when the cop is gone the cop pulled him over for a seatbelt violation i was so outraged i was so outraged and and he had to, he, and, and his reaction was hey, david you have to calm down man this is like this is the way it works mm-hmm. i was like are you, are you kidding me mm-hmm. um i i can never imagine that happening to me but what, what, what i what i do understand is how experiences like that shape the perspective of people of color and, and ultimately reflect the fact that they don't have the same experience of living in this country as I do as a white man. And, and getting back to the gospel, right? So, so again, with these two very different perspectives, you know, these, these kind of felt like binary choices on this issue of racial justice, I, I, I started going to, like, what does God say? 
Like yes. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interested in politicizing this. Like it's a, it's a, you know, this conservative perspective, liberal perspective. Like, what does the gospel say about the heart of God for issues of race and justice? And as I, and I started reading the Bible very differently. You know, the word justice is named over 200 times in the Old Testament. And I started reading through the, the prophets again and recognizing that God had two complaints about His people. Right, one that they they pursued other gods. You know, they were they were being transactional with their gods. Right, they weren't into a relationship. They're interested in like, what can God give me? They were they were pursuing other gods. And second, that they were not practicing justice. And specifically, God says over and over, right, that He names the widows and orphans. He names the foreigners, immigrants, and He names the poor, mm-hmm. namely those people in society that did not have power, that did not have social standing, economic standing. And, um, you know, there's plenty of verses. One that jumps out to me is in Jeremiah 22, when God calls us to stop the oppressor who is robbing people. And he, and he commends the previous King Josiah, and he says, he took up the cause of the poor and the needy. Hmm. Is this not what it means to know me? Yes. And so I think the church has an opportunity to be a leader on this issue because we should not be burdened by you know, guilt or, or resistance, defensiveness when it comes to kind of even our own history. And we've been given a mandate by God to pursue justice mm-hmm. for, for the oppressed. My experience, again, in, in practice, not in theory, because I don't come at this from, a, as, you know, from, a, from an academic perspective, but just what I have seen and witnessed and, and the relationships I've built, I think that you know, people of color in this country are among the oppressed. Uh, certainly, the history of their experience in this country is undeniable. And, and I, you know, I've seen you know, things that, I, that I, I was not exposed to, was not, um, did not understand you know, uh, until I spent time in these relationships that, that you know, a lot of their experiences uh, still reflects that oppression. I really appreciate that. I appreciate those experience stories that you share. Again, because this is one of the reasons Asbury has immersive travel experiences as a part of our curriculum because there are some things that just cannot be learned in a classroom. Uh, so whether it's your experiences in New York or what you described in your Middle East or uh, European travel, there are just things that, that we learn. The, the Some things are caught, not taught idea. I also really love the description of the church's opportunity and ability to be a third way. Uh, I think the question you raised is, uh, the the right one. What does the gospel say, and what is our best collective interpretation of what it means to manifest th- being the people of God in 2021? And that question will be just as relevant today as it was yesterday, and just as relevant 30 years from now. Dave, I, I want to just thank you for taking the time. Uh, I've very much enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for being salt and light in the world and the work that you're doing and the, the voice you provide. I just shared in chapel last week, I believe it's Second Corinthians 3, Paul says, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? No, you're the letter. You're the recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're living, mm-hmm. walking, talking, breathing presence. Your activity is this living epistle for the truth of the gospel. And so thank you for being... Uh, a living, breathing, talking, walking <laughs> letter of recommendation 
uh, for the church in Jesus Christ. And thank you for sharing with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Amen. Let it be so. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Our thanks again to 1999 Asbury graduate David Turley for today's interview. If you have questions or comments on the podcast, we encourage you to email us at belong at asbury.edu. Belonging and Becoming is a production of Asbury University.